episode 259. What are payers looking to solve for right now? Today, I speak with Rahul Dubey. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Rahul Dubey is the founder of Personal Health Innovations. He's also the former chief innovation officer at AHIP, that's America's Health Insurance Plans. AHIP is a trade group for insurance carriers, health systems, best-in-breed solution providers, and others. Rahul has created what he calls strategic working groups, in which he gets together essential stakeholders within a regional geography to collaborate and figure out innovative, best-in-class emerging solutions and approaches. The first thing they do in these strategic working groups is to identify common problems. Since the best solutions solve the best problems for the most stakeholders, this seems like a pretty decent way to start. What are some of the challenges that Rahul has identified with payers and providers and other stakeholders to solve for? Here's your listicle. Number one, really get to population health management and just population health. Number two, operational inefficiencies. Number three, information trafficking without getting anything out of it is not going to work anymore. And lastly, number four, level up health literacy. Here's a point Rahul makes that I'm continuing to think about. He says that payers should be great aggregators, aggregators of data, aggregators of solutions that they should be able to distribute to other essential stakeholders. I heard somebody else say the other day that the new payer is more like an entity that provides comprehensive services. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Rahul Dubey, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thank you so much. I'm flattered to be on the show and been a fan, so. Well, I am flattered to have you, my friend. So let's talk about the stated needs of payers. If you were going to make a list, what would that <laughs> list consist of these days? <laughs> I have made a list. I know you have. That's why uh, I asked. <laughs> It's an informal list, but it's been through, you know, without an aggregate level, let me tell you what we're really focusing on here. And this is straight from C-suites at 118 different payers and providers and integrated delivery networks. And so some of the challenges that we're hearing first and foremost, how do we really get to total population management, total population health within our market around disease-specific and condition-specific population segments. So what does that mean is how are we able to manage the health and well-being of an identified segment of chronic care patients, such as uh, COPD, a great example, with its comorbidities, behavioral health, mental health with its comorbidities, and do so in a way that is going to follow the fundamental truths. My, my fundamental truths for innovation and transformation is it must map back to four key things, the quality, the access, the cost, and the consumer experience. So how are we going to be able to solve behavioral health, opioid addiction issues in a specific market, working with multi-stakeholders? And that is one challenge that I keep hearing over and over again. Another one is where are the inefficiencies that we can actually cut out of the system? It is a bloated system, and, and some people say it's a broken system. So there's a lot of cracks where, where capital and spending are, are leaking out. Let's look at that and then try to transform that into a funding source for innovation and transformation to get per the personnel in there to be able to drive those partnerships forward, to be able to communicate properly with consumers and, and customers in our markets. So we need to look at those operational efficiencies. What does that look like in terms of technology? What does that look like in terms of data efficiency as well? How are we sharing information? 
Certainly right now there's a worry going on that there's information trafficking that is just taking place of moving information from one area to the other without really delving deep into it or getting anything definitive out of it. That's another pressing challenge that we're looking at. And then how do we work with educating consumers, patients around their conditions, around their health, around preventative patient literacy, health literacy, and certain markets is very low. And I know it's not easy because we're dealing with multiple segments and different socio and and economic levels. Let me just um, reiterate what the challenges are that I heard you articulate. So one of them is looking at the total population health within a particular disease segment. So finding patients that have a certain chronic condition, I'm assuming cost drivers. You know, you mentioned COPD, which is one of the usual suspects as a cost driver. The other ones being depression, cardiovascular, diabetes. There's a few others as well. And then ensuring that the patient journey there is well-defined. Did I understand that right? Absolutely. And that is all-encompassing total population management as we're defining it. And you, you framed it very well because I think you named three or four different stakeholders there in that description, right? So you, that reveals the, com- the complexity of what we're doing. And then number two, you you had said inefficiencies, getting rid of bloated inefficiencies. And, and one point that you made I thought was really interesting, that that could be a potential cost saver. And if you save money there, then you can use the cash saved to fund something else. That is absolutely, it, it is a, a reverse approach. One of the challenges that we found in this kind of operational efficiencies, and one of it was fraud, waste, and abuse. There's a lot of unnecessary, undetected, preventable fraud, waste, and abuse. And the reason why we went down that avenue is because the innovation had stalled due to lack of funding. Innovation is unfortunately one of those budgets that gets cut very early. So as we were progressing toward building out the framework for chronic care, collaborative care model for chronic care conditions, in this case, behavioral health, We needed to go in and find a funding source because it was going to stall. And in order to do that, we looked at the operational inefficiencies that were taking place in fraud, waste and abuse. And we were able to recognize $28 million in savings and just in fraudulent claims and took that money and used that as a funding source for innovation within the organization. That was proved very powerful that we weren't stalling on the behavioral health, first and foremost, not for the innovation, but for the behavioral health patients in that market. We were at, did not have to delay it by a year. We were able to go live last January 1st. Got it. Okay. And then the third thing that you mentioned, I think I understood to be information transfer. Do you mean interoperability or like creating a single source of truth or what's all wrapped up with that? It depends on the market. The interoperability is a good way to put it. I think a lot of people have, have freed up capabilities to share information within stakeholders within a certain market. You know, Obviously, they have within their own organizations, which is not surprising, but it has taken a lot longer. Now we're sharing information, we're gathering hordes and reams of data, and we're sharing this information back and forth. But have we looked into, are we looking at the right data? Are we just gathering information and terabytes of information with velocity and volume? And we need to go a little bit further. We need to, what is the data telling us? What can the data tell us? How do we make it more actionable? And then when we have that information, who do we share it with and how do we do that? I think is something that is imperative. And so instead of just being able to send massive information from one party to the next party, how are we enabling? How are we able to transfer that information that end result is going to impact, again, I map it back to those fundamental truths. That's the the point I'm trying to make is, is the information that we're sharing impacting improving quality? Is it increasing access? Is it lowering cost? And is it making patient satisfaction much higher than the current low net promoter score that it is? And so it sounds like there has been 
kind of the realization, the implicit realization that, you know, if they say data is the new bacon, right? Right. If you're going to achieve the universal truths that you just mentioned, it is imperative that there is data that sits behind it that's used well. It sounds like that has become a commonplace truth. I think that there is an understanding and a realization that that is there. Now, how do we create that world, a data-driven world? I think we're still very far away from. Are we getting definitive ROI or definitive inputs upon people from the data practice that we have right now? And, and informally talking to the C-level executives, we're a long way away from that. But there is the realization that it is there and that it is important. And we can drive this very differently than, than we have before. And is that somewhat driven by the new entrants in the marketplace? You know, like in carriers, payers, just like all of the other stakeholders in the marketplace, like providers, for example, have suddenly found themselves competing against, you know, new entrants. And some of those new entrants <laughs> are really good at data. So it could be one of those innovators dilemma, emerging market sure. issues. But that- it's an identity dilemma, to be honest with you, more than, than an innovator's dilemma. I mean, we are not, as payers and as health systems, we are not data analytics companies, right? nor should we be. What we need to do is really focus a little bit more about partnering with people and organizations that are best in breed or new entrants that are going to fill those gaps and, and helping us look at the data in a way that we've never looked at it before, nor how are we going to develop those capabilities if we're not working with teams that know how to do it so much better than we are. And that's why innovation is a team sport. And we need to be able to put the trust and respect into these solution providers and new entrants to get the job done collectively. We can't innovate fast enough to meet the needs of the market. We never can. So we need to be able to partner rather than to fear or to try to become. So I think that there's that identity crisis. Payers, providers, these essential stakeholders in the marketplace and the ecosystem are the ones that have to drive the change. It has to come from within. And that is going to take a mindset. It's going to take capital. It's going to take operational ability and capabilities. And I think we really need to focus on that. Don't need to become the next startup or unicorn. That's not our role. Our role is to feed them, to enable them and to give them direction based on our domain expertise, but also looking at what is beneficial, knowing that transformation is gonna take place and it has to be serving specific parties, otherwise it's gonna die on the vine. But we just talked about four stated needs. What are some of the ways that, I mean, maybe there's a case study or two that you wanna mention of an innovation that has been rolled out that you think is really demonstrative of the zeitgeist that we're in right now? I think one of the things I've been very proud of because the issue is very near and dear to me is is working with Valera Behavioral Health, Capital District Physician Health Plan, and another payer, uh, Group Health Cooperative. So working on kind of a future back aspect of it, the challenge was behavioral health was a high cost driver in a condition in a space in which the payers were somewhat fairly new at. The world had changed after the ACA. Behavioral health, the onus of that care fell directly upon an insurance company and payer. And so it was a new foray into a disease state, disease burden for a complex patient population. And how are we going to be able to provide adequate care for a population that suffered from behavioral health in a market that had limited behavioral health networks and that was their case manager department, case management department was getting inundated with calls and not being able to service a much larger population that had a need and had a care need that could not be addressed in the marketplace. 
So Valera is is obviously a, a tech company, or do they have their own case manager? So is this the payer outsourcing the whole kit and caboodle to another entity, or was the payer using their own case managers more efficiently with this digital tool? Great differentiator. In this case, it was Valera working directly with the care management teams of the payers to be able to drive this. So effectively, what would then happen would be same scenario. You know, the case managers are getting inundated with calls that they just do not have enough manpower labor to address using the Valera tool to automate certain functions, I'm going to assume then they can, I'm going to say, work to the highest level of their license, so to speak, but they could be able to handle a larger caseload. Is that kind of how it played out? Absolutely. It improved the, the, the caseload, the interaction, the satisfaction on both ends between the patient and the care manager to deliver. It's moved from, I think, around rough numbers, 50, being able to work with 50 patients per day comfortably to 150, which is tremendous. And it has, has a major impact within those markets in this case in Albany and uh, Eau Claire, Wisconsin, for the payer side. It has been said, maybe by you, that the <laughs> that an optimal solution is 50% tech and 50% touch. Because, you know, you go 100% touch, exactly like you're articulating, you can't scale. It's really hard to scale human-only endeavor by any other means than just adding larger, more to the workforce. On the other hand, if you're tech-only, then engagement becomes a really high barrier, becomes very difficult. And that's becoming evident more and more. You know, like the only people using apps are wealthier, motivated <laughs> individuals. It was that one of the impetuses behind the structure of what you did? I think it can come across as and it, it is a 50-50 a high-tech, high-touch I think one of the, the things about creating this framework when we were working in the innovation lab is the fact that we took a digital first approach. And I want to clarify that does not mean digital only, but it's designing digital, knowing that eventually, no matter what segment of population we're working with or any product group, however you want to put it, Medicare, individual, Medicaid, right, eventually they will be moving toward digital. And so we like to look at the early interactions on certain populations, whether it's elderly, whether it's Medicaid based on socioeconomic, that we want to look at, at this engagement between care managers is almost training wheels. And we're working with them digitally, but also there's a human touch to it to eventually show them that they can start self-managing. Now, that might take two or three interactions. That might take 25 interactions. We're not concerned with that. But we've designed digital first so that when they are comfortable to move, they will no longer be reaching out to us, right? They will no longer be saying, okay, let's, how do I set up this chat? They will automatically be chatting. When that is, there's, there's degrees variation there. But designing digital first doesn't mean that, okay, we're going to do high touch early on with 500 patients. And if they like this program, then we're going to design digital. Well, we're going to lose them in the time that we designed digital. Designing digital first enabled that when whenever anyone in those population segment is ready to go digital, it is available for them. That could be day one, that could be day 365. Effectively, if you get someone who's got a low kind of maybe technology literacy or maybe just low literacy, you kind of almost have to, exactly like you just said with the training wheels, effectively, there is a safety net of humans who will catch you if you can't figure out how to work the app, it sounds like. But if you're, you know, entirely competent and you're good to go, 
then you can become increasingly digital only. Absolutely. We've had care managers sit down next to the patients and work with them in the app, even while they're having the face-to-face meeting. So they felt comfortable enough. Some have worked with them six or seven times. That's the one aspect. When we've interviewed them afterwards, the improvement on their life, not only in the clinical aspect of it has been significant, but their improvement on their daily lives for not having to take two buses, sit in the waiting room to have a conversation about how come they're angry and upset or depressed, and then get back onto the two buses and then go home and be completely disconnected for one to three weeks before they have to get back on the two buses. And it's amazing to see that because now all of a sudden it's in the power of their hand. They're not alone. They prefer chat box. They prefer anonymous chat. Those are the things that they want to talk about that are personal. And we make these assumptions that they don't want to use technology. They don't want to use an app. But when you're talking about sensitive things to certain cultures and ethnicities, you don't talk about things out loud. You write them down or you don't talk about them at all. I heard somebody else talking about that, that actually when it comes to sensitive topics, there's actually higher engagement when people know they're talking to a robot. 68% higher engagement with chatbot for Valera Health than telephonic. And do you feel that the case study that we kind of ran through here is something that more and more payers are beginning to work on solutions to address of a similar ilk? Like they're starting to realize, okay, we've only got this many case managers. And therefore, in order to scale at any level or provide the caliber of solution that's necessary to actually achieve better outcomes, we must add a digital component. Yeah, there was a very rewarding period of time when we were implementing where the care management team looked up. And and it's the beauty of innovation is, is there is no finish line. It is continuous. And this is where I think it has to come from within. So now they're starting to use that same infrastructure that was built for behavioral health to manage COPD, to diabetes, and other conditions that are that are congested heart failure, hypertension, along with depression. Relative to other solutions that you think may have reached a point that there's multiple payers who are thinking the same thing, a critical mass of some kind has been reached, an inflection point of some kind has been reached. So you had mentioned that the challenges were were total population health management, and we talked about the kind of case manager digital solution there. But relative to either the transfer of information, interoperability, working with providers, collaborating with providers, or education, are there any examples there which you feel are really representative or or iconic of where we are at the beginning of 2020? I think that there's... The lines of communication and business model creation is it's getting very creative right now in terms of who are we partnering with and why. And I think that the creativity is coming in because of that, that sharing of risk across the board, whereas before one person shared that risk or took on the risk in a marketplace. I think the one, the, the, the payer or the provider in the marketplace that is actually going to set up true lines of communication, true alignment on... Uh, health outcomes of a specific population segment, and then bringing other players into the fold. The first person to do that in the market is going to have a significant competitive advantage, and not just in terms of closing out the marketplace, but being able to open up more opportunities in that marketplace and then adjacent markets as well. Most of the conversations that I have around innovation don't have to do with cost cutting and bottom line. They have to do with growth. And I think that that's the mentality that is going to be imperative for anyone to be the leader and the stakeholder. And meaning the leader, meaning the one that is 
privileged enough to be responsible for the care and then deliver that for the patient and their family members. Is there anything else before we close out this topic that you think, like I said, has reached an inflection point that everywhere you look, you're seeing payers struggling or grappling with or well along the curve of installing or or delivering some sort of solution? I think that where there's a little challenge, and I don't want to, I'm not singling out payers here at all. I'm talking about the, the, the essential stakeholders in the market. I think the data play is coming in and we've done a good job of gathering that information, but what good is it if we're not finding the key insights that are going to start turning these things around, such as improving health, uh, improving quality and increasing access? I think that's something that's going to be very, very imperative. To me, moving forward in 2020, if we don't start looking at the data, either the small data, the actionable data, and stop just collecting, I think that, that we're going to miss a significant opportunity for us to transform healthcare. That sounds reasonable. A, a more definitive risk, Stacey. I think that that's what we need to to focus on is what can we find out about Rahul Dubey in terms of both in a physical world, but also his intrinsic motivations too. You have to understand what is driving the person to stay healthy, to stay unhealthy, to eat well, not eat well, to sleep, not sleep. And then what is going to get that person to, to make that change? I think we need to continue to, to strive for that and, and have that on the horizon and, and aim for that. And that is something, of course, that for better, for worse, big tech is well known for their ability to, let's just say, excel in that area. And that's why I believe that solution providers, I don't call them vendors, I call them solution providers. Some of them are are absolutely amazing. They're some of the top breed, best in breed solution providers. Speaking of collaborations, and it almost seems like collaboration is, is a rate critical. If a payer really wants to grow, as you put it, then the ability to be a good partner or the ability to know how to collaborate optimally is going to be something that is absolutely vital. Yeah, the great aggregator is the way that I like to put it. It's as a payer, uh, as a risk-bearing entity, as the leader of, of delivering care in that market, we need to be the great aggregators of, of information, of solutions, of resources, and we need to be able to distribute that amongst our brothers and sisters in, in the ecosystem, payers, providers, pharma, and medtech. And we need to be able to look at the needs of the market and stand up and say, we are the original equipment manufacturer. We are the OEM. You know, Toyota does not make every piece that goes into their car, but they do source that. And we are responsible for making sure that they know how to build those pieces. And if they don't, then we need to help them because it means a better product. And we need to take that mentality. Yeah, it's interesting. I had a conversation with Brian Van Winkle and Rahib Shah. They are working with Node Health, a Node Health organization, on an initiative called Ease of Doing Business. Because one of the things that they have realized is that collaboration is vital for the future, but there's a lot of organizations that are really hard to partner with. You know, they require 17 BAAs and then they change the BAA process or... Right, right, um, right when you're in the middle of negotiations. And- yeah, or it doesn't, it's not clear who needs to sign off on something. So, so just the process becomes almost impossible for anyone that is looking to partner, which could have some immense business impact down the line for that particular partner. But it certainly has an impact for anyone who, especially a smaller entity, who's looking to do good things with them. It is extremely refreshing to have been able to see what Brian and Shaw have been able to put together in terms of the improvements of the efficiency. We've talked about that, what needs to take place in legal departments and in contracting I've been in many rooms where the value proposition has been come across and cemented within six weeks. 
and 18 months later, we're still contracting. That is a massive challenge. We will not be able to get out of our, we can't get out of our own way. Having legal at the table as a teammate saying, help me get this through because it meets the imperatives of our three, five-year goals. That is the way that we need to be able to do it. And you know what's happening is the cell internally, Stacey, I'm glad that you brought this up, is taking 90% of our energy. By the time we get it through, we have 10% left in the tank to take it to market, to launch, to iterate, to, to launch again. And that takes a lot of energy, really leading to a challenge. Sometimes a the sunshine runs out, the funding runs out, or the laws or regulations change. And we need to be a little bit more dynamic and flexible in terms of getting things to market. Yeah, and speaking of getting to market, one of the things that you've said in the past relative to collaboration is that the best ones kind of start small, that it's a it's a building of trust. And the best way to do that is to come up with maybe something that's potentially a little bit, let's just say, less monumental, minimum viable product kind of affair and then grow from there as opposed to trying to eat the elephant in in one bite? You know, we're in new territory. And I think a lot of the times what we're seeing from healthcare when I first came in was interoperability, standardization across the board, 50 different states, 50 different state governments, regulation compliance, it's impossible. I think we need to look into it in terms of breaking it down into these micro segments and seeing what works. But it's more relationship innovation and business model innovation than technology. I promise you that. It's cultural. It's understanding the person across the aisle or the people across the different aisles and sitting down with them one-on-one and discussing that. That is the, the biggest challenge that we're facing. I can't stress that enough. It is not invention. It is not technology. It is not implementation. It is an understanding and sitting down and saying, hey, this person is valuable to me. This person is different or they don't get it. It's what makes us different is valuable. And we need to be able to put that at the table because we're going through the biggest business transformation in two generations. And I think it's crucial for us to understand what those problems are. And we don't want to just play nice. We need to understand what is causing physician burnout. Is it us? Is it a payer? Is it administrative burden from the health system and the hospital administrator? I don't know, but whatever it is, it is impacting our ability to deliver care to our citizens and our neighbors. We have a very unhealthy population. And a lot of that comes back to, you know, instead of pointing fingers saying, okay, let's roll this up. It reminds me a little bit of why I designed the AHIP Innovation Lab. I I stole directly from, you know, a scene from Apollo 13, where the senior uh, master control guy comes into the, the room and dumps all these materials on the table and says, you know, they have 36 hours of oxygen left. They have these materials up there. This needs to look like that. Failure is not an option. It's What we have, we dump out our resources on the table and we're losing people to opioids, we're losing people to comorbidities, congestive heart failure, heart attacks, avoidable deaths in hospitals. And we have everything that we need except for the willingness to understand and the awareness of what the the challenges are on the other side and then just the priority to say we're going to do this together. So if you were going to give advice to someone who is looking to collaborate with a health plan, you know, an insurance carrier, what advice would you have for them? What should they walk in the door being either prepared to talk about or, you know, so is it kind of what do they need to bring to the table? That's like one kind of advice or, or, you know, maybe it's something more process oriented. I think that the major challenge is that we assume that a payer or entity is facing in the marketplace is wrong. I think that everything we know about it is wrong, go into that. And I mean that with with humility, right? (laughs) From experience, everything I knew about payers was wrong until I went in and started 
not telling them how great my solution was or how big their problem was, but to really kind of understand what is the true problem in the marketplace. It's not the astronomical diabetes spend. It is their inability to arm their primary care network with the right tools to educate the marketplace about healthy eating. It could be that simple, or it could be frozen data lakes underneath a 1970s cobalt Fortran system that is not going to matter what you say to them, right? So know the audience because one payer is one payer. I know people have heard that before, but one health system is one health system. I have this list of stated needs, but I don't like revealing it because I don't want people to think that those are the challenges that face every payer when you talk to them. So the advice would be... Everything you know is wrong. (laughs) I'm I'm picking up what you're laying down, Rahul. So, you know, like walk in the door, maybe with a general sense of potentially what the ultimate repercussion of the issue might be, but don't make any assumption to the why of it or the how to fix it. I will go off of experience. The value proposition that a startup has going to a payer or to a provider health system is probably on the first three slides. Yet we skip over those and we go into, look how cool our tech is. Or look at how much you know engagement utilization we get. And so the exploration of entry points is not as standardized. You know, if you're a clinical solution, you don't necessarily have to talk to the chief medical officer. You might want to talk to the head of national accounts because they're the ones that are talking to their biggest customers, which are the employers, about bringing down the cost of chronic conditions. And what about if I'm a provider? And I'm thinking to myself, you know, like maybe it's an administrative issue that I have or or maybe it's something that I see there's an issue with COPD patients, for example. I have envisioned a better way to care for them. That's a win-win across the board. Do you have any advice if I'm a provider and I want to collaborate better? Maybe I want to get data from the payer in order to facilitate something. What's the best way to make that happen? I think at the last uh, speaking session when I was up in New York a couple weeks ago, uh, during the Q&A, someone asked me that question. And it's very simple. You shoot a LinkedIn note to your peer and counterpart at the organization and ask them for a phone call or for a cup of coffee. And I promise you, if it's executive to executive, professional to professional, They'll take the call or you'll have a cup of coffee and you make a friend on the other side. It really does go a long way because I promise you for your frustrations as a professional C-suite executive, rising executive within payer or provider on the other side, there's that same person that wants to talk to you as well. Besides the ease of doing business conversation, is there anything that we may have left out relative to, to payers? You know, like what have you seen as being essential to a payer's success in being able to grow in the way that in the ways that we're talking about today? I think there's some amazing sessions of introspection taking place within these, these organizations. And I think one question we like to ask ourselves, and I even ask the CEOs this, is who are we trying to serve? And I think if we continue to answer that question and go back to why we originally started and what our intent is, it's the people that we, who do we serve and are we doing that? And if not, then how, what does that look like? And then it's a great way to start. It's a very difficult question. I know CEOs ask themselves those questions every day. And I think we need to go back because sometimes we get lost into, oh, I need to meet this compliance regulation or I need to lower this cost or I need to pull this lever because it's going to improve my job satisfaction. We are human, right? We do serve ourselves, but who are we trying to serve? And I think that that's a very good question to to start off every discussion, framework creation around healthcare innovation and transformation. So Rahul, if someone is 
interested in learning more about your work at Personal Health Innovations, where can they reach you? Oh, I would love for to hear from the marketplace and be able to see how we might be able to, to collaborate with new entrants and, and established institutions. So either email me, I believe the information will be on the site or link in with me and, and I'm happy to connect. Rahul Dubey, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thank you, Stacey. I look forward to a long collaboration with you and, and your listeners as well. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.